Nothing draws us in like a good story. For millennia, humanity has come together to hear them told. Stories help us remember our past, understand our present, and anticipate our future. During this season, we remember the story of God unfolded throughout history in stories of both good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, triumph and defeat. Stories that whisper the name of a conquering king, a final victor, the faithful and true author himself. So, gather around, settle in, let's listen once more to the stories that fill us with hope, joy, peace, and love. This is the story that changes everything. Well, 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 good afternoon, church. Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh man, this is an incredible uh, day, isn't it? The, the day before, uh, the day that we come together to celebrate the advent of Jesus. That, that's what tomorrow is. Christmas Day uh, is set apart in our uh, cultural journey and in our global context uh, to celebrate the advent of Jesus. So, so what is this advent of Jesus? The word advent literally means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. That's what the word advent in the dictionary means. So what we are preparing to celebrate tomorrow is the remembering of the arrival of Jesus. And the reason we call it the Advent is because we have come to understand that Jesus was no ordinary person arriving in an ordinary way. He was very notable. And what we discover as we understand who he is, is that he was not just a notable person worthy of a cycle of remembering his arrival, but he is the most notable person ever to show up on planet earth. And this is why tomorrow we come together to celebrate this arrival, this advent, to fix ourselves on it, to remember it, to process it, to think about it, uh, and to really be in awe once again of the fact that he arrived, that he came at all. This uh, unfolding of this arrival is uh, captured in uh, its events in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, the actual events transpire in terms of his actual arrival in our human past when he actually showed up. Um, and there are in this uh, particular characters, people that were present at that arrival. In our setting, the thing that's perhaps most notable in our Christmas decorations on our trees and around our houses is the nativity scene as far as something representing Christmas, right? I mean, if you think about the quintessential Christmas reality, you think of the nativity scene. Why the nativity scene? Because the nativity scene represents 
the events that took place and the people that were involved at this actual point of arrival in our human history. This is the point at which Jesus arrives. And in that nativity scene, there are particular people that were present in that moment. Mary and Joseph were present in that moment. Mary and Joseph being the parents of this child being born that is arriving, uh, whose name is Jesus. There is also a present there from a human perspective, uh, some shepherds from a nearby field that show up at this particular moment of the actual arrival shortly after Jesus is born on that particular night. There are some animals likely there because it is a cave with a trough. Animals we don't know, but we do know that there's a donkey and a cow on a nativity scene. So that works out really well. Um, I know in the nativity scenes, you also have typically the wise men, the magi. Um, and they certainly belong in our nativity scene as far as it helps us remember that there is a bigger, broader story to Christ's arrival, to the arrival of Jesus, than just the events of that night. But shockingly, the magi were likely not there on that particular night. They showed up quite a bit later. So they're in the nativity scene as extras. Welcome, magi important extras, but extras nonetheless. So for the sake of our journey today, we are sticking with those who were actually on scene at the actual arrival of Jesus. And I have often wondered what it must have been like to be able to be sitting in that little space, in that little cave, staring into this trough, this feeding trough, this manger, and looking at this baby and realizing what this represents, who this person actually is, and the awe and wonder that Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds must have experienced in that moment. Often longing myself to perhaps have had the privilege to be in such a moment. But I've come to realize over time as I have studied the journey of scripture that in fact, it is us who know so much more than they would have known, who have the real opportunity, the real privilege of standing in full awe of this celebration, of this particular advent, this particular arrival, because we know things that Mary and Joseph, that the shepherds did not know at that time, could not have known at that time. And therefore, their understanding of what it meant that they were staring at King Jesus was limited in comparison to what we know. We know so much more, leaving us with the opportunity tomorrow to be in so much more awe than they may have been even in that moment itself. And that's what today is about. We gather at church to prepare ourselves on Christmas Eve for tomorrow, to show up tomorrow with a full clarity of why this person, Jesus, we use the word advent with versus just arrival because the notability of Jesus is profound at this advent. You see, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds had a couple of things that they did know that made their experience in that scene uh, particularly incredible. They must have been in total awe. Here's what they knew. First of all, they did know that this baby born was the declared king who would save his people. Why did they know that? Well, Mary knew that because she had been visited by an angel who told her that. This child that you're going to have is going to be in the line of King David. 
He is going to become the king that is going to sit on the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom will reign forever, right? So this was literally said to Mary. This is who Jesus is. He is the one that has been promised all along that will now once and for all conquer things and set things right. She knew that. Joseph certainly knew that, partly because Mary would have shared that with him, and partly because Joseph was also visited by an angel, and things were shared with him about the profound, miraculous nature of this particular conception and birth. So Joseph knew. Also, remember that Mary had visited her cousin Elizabeth, whose husband was Zechariah, and they too had had a visitation from an angel, Zechariah in particular, And they had also conceived in a miraculous way, not as miraculous as Mary. They conceived, but they were older and had never been able to have children. So it was quite a profound thing. And their son would be John, who would be part of the prophetic, precise history uh, that God had laid out in the Old Testament. Mary had talked with Elizabeth, visited Elizabeth, so they had had conversations about the nature of the child in her and the nature of the child in Elizabeth. They knew big things were unfolding. The shepherds certainly knew what was going down because they had also been visited supernaturally by angels in the field. And what did those angels tell these Jewish shepherds? They said, in the city of David, this night is born a person who is the Lord, the Savior. You see, this is profound for those shepherds because this uh, little town, Bethlehem, The reason Joseph and Mary were there is because there was a census and the census required you to go back to the town of your lineage and their lineage heads back to David because this is the town of David. And in the prophetic history, one of the key things of the coming rescuer Messiah or king who would set his people free was that he would be in the line of David and he would ultimately become the king who would be on the throne of David, whose kingdom would last forever. The shepherds are going, oh my goodness, in the line of David, born in the city, a Messiah, let's go take a look. So the people in that room, in that moment, knew who they were looking at. They also understood then from scripture, because remember, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds would have had access throughout their life to the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Testament. They had all the prophetic history. They had all the early books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, They had the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, they therefore knew a couple of things. They knew our human history. That when God created us as a human race, as people through Adam and Eve, that he created us within a creation that had perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Creation had a perfect relationship with itself. There was no hostility toward God from creation or mankind, no hostility toward each other, and no hostility of creation toward creation. It's described in Genesis this way. The lion laid down with the lamb. Hostility was not a thing. And therefore, the fruit of hostility, injustice, pain, suffering, uh, all that didn't exist because there was no hostility. And Adam and Eve, our human ancestors, chose to believe something that wasn't true 
and they chose to become their own gods by disobeying a clarity God had given them. And in that act, what the scripture describes that Mary and Joseph would have known, that the shepherds would have known, is that entering into the human story was a curse. Now, I use the word curse, and in our cultural context, the word curse sounds like a fairy tale. You know, there's a curse involved here. So let me put it into a different context for you, because ultimately the word curse translates this way. Think of it as a virus, perhaps. We know viruses real well, don't we? And what do viruses do? An outside virus enters into the host. When the virus enters the host, it replicates and overtakes the host. And its goal is to ultimately so totally overtake the host. And then it inevitably does what to the host if untreated? Kills the host, right? So sin is described in scripture like we experience a virus, and you can call it a curse. It enters the human story, it enters creation, and it starts taking over all of the story of mankind and creation, producing this reality of hostility. Immediately, there is hostility between man and God, between mankind and mankind, between mankind and nature, and between nature and mankind, and nature and itself. Nature is not kind to itself, is it? Lots of hostility. So entering with this virus is the fruit of the virus, hostility, which leads to all the terrible things we experience, injustice, pain, suffering, heartache, brokenness, et cetera, et cetera. What Mary and Joseph would have known, uh, what the shepherds would have known is that starting at that point in history of our human history, God starts saying, don't worry, I am going to preserve the human race despite the fact that this virus sin, this curse sin is going to try and produce death constantly. I'm going to preserve the human story until such a time that I will send a solution, a person, a savior. I will come in a person and I will set right this by overcoming or subduing sin and death. So that they would have known. And they would have understood from the Old Testament that this king would arrive, the savior in the line of David as a king on a throne to conquer, to come and conquer sin and death, to subdue it. And the way that they understood he would do it is that he would rule with such power that the nations who are hostile toward each other wouldn't be hostile because he would subdue them. And so they were waiting for this king to show up, this conquering king to come and set them free from the fruit of sin and death and once and for all free them from the curse. That's what they would have known. Now this king shows up as a baby in this odd circumstance, in this manger that doesn't seem appropriate for a king. But this is God's way throughout the the historical story of the Old Testament. When David was found to become king, what was he? He was a little shepherd boy in the middle of a field. He was a nobody. And in his brothers, they were all bigger than him and God chose him. So if I were Mary and Joseph and I were the shepherds and I knew the story of King David and I saw Jesus in the manger and I knew God had promised a conquering king to come and subdue sin and death, what would I conclude rightly? Is that this king is showing up and it's gonna go manger to white horse, baby. I mean, it's just a matter of time. He's come to conquer. And what an exciting thing that you are going to be part of watching the conquering king rise and then conquer the curse so that humanity would be free. Unbelievable. And that's rightly what I would have thought. If I had in my head, I imagine 
what Mary and Joseph or the shepherds might have had. I might have thought of a future with Jesus where he was sitting on a giant white horse with a beautiful robe flowing from behind him, fire in his eyes, ready to go and conquer sin and death. An army behind him, uh, more than one could count, with white robes on them as well, on white horses, ready to charge in and conquer the nations and overcome the hostility and subdue sin and death once once and for all. Perhaps words of such power that they would be like swords coming out of his mouth. I would imagine a king that would be called faithful and true, a king that on his robe it would say, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what I would have imagined in my head. And what excitement, what awe, what wonder might have been theirs in that manger scene, thinking of this coming king. The disciples that would follow Jesus later on had the same vision. They kept saying, when's he going to take over? When's he going to take his throne? When's he going to rise as king? When's he going to overthrow Rome? When's he going to set up his throne? When's he going to start ruling? We'll rule by his side and we'll be on the first set of white horses right behind the king of kings to roll out and conquer sin and death and the nations along with it. Yeah. Except it didn't go down that way. Didn't go down that way at all. It just got stranger and stranger because Jesus, as he began to teach, would teach about the fact that he was actually going to suffer and die. And they they would kind of like smile and nod and go, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, I don't know what he means. It's some kind of parable. He would talk about things that they couldn't fathom. And you see, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, what they had was the Old Testament of the curse. They had the Old Testament of the promise. They had the Old Testament of the conquering king coming. But they did not have Jesus and his teachings yet because he was an infant in that manger. We have Jesus as a teacher teaching us they did not. So they could not have known all the things he would say about what he was up to. And they also didn't have access to what Jesus told his disciples would happen after he left the planet. He said, when I leave, after I die, I will rise from the dead. I will do a conquering you can't fathom. Then I will leave. And when I leave, I will give you my spirit and my spirit will teach you things I have not yet taught you. And that actually does occur. And out of the spirit filling his people, his disciples, they write about incredible things that the spirit teaches them that we call the New Testament. So we have this incredible, intricate unpacking of what this advent, this arrival of Jesus actually meant. You see, the trouble is that what Mary and Joseph couldn't have known, what the shepherds couldn't have known, that only we can know because of what we have, is that this advent wasn't the only one. It would have made sense to them that there was one advent, one arrival. There would be the curse, the suffering, the arrival of the king, the conquering king would conquer and all would be well in the world, right? But it turns out we find out that Jesus had a plan where there would be two arrivals. Why two arrivals? Why is this arrival so profound and important so that the next arrival can be something we anticipate with great wonder and joy? Here's why. Because in the New Testament, what begins to be described with such wonder, especially in the book of Romans, which was written by Paul, but in a multitude of the other New Testament writings, this is what's described. You know that little virus that entered the human story and the story of creation? It turns out that what the New Testament describes as the Holy Spirit teaches us is that this virus 
is not separated from us as a human race. It has so consumed us in creation that we are now a part of this virus. Best picture I have for you, you're gonna be like, what is this? Have you ever seen like a zombie movie? Like zombies, you know what a zombie is, right? What was a zombie before it became a zombie? You realize, I don't know, a person, a person. And then what did the zombie get? It got infected by a virus and then it turned into a zombie. Now you're in a dilemma, aren't you? Because this zombie was once a wonderful person and now they're not a wonderful person. And so you want to kill the virus, but to kill the virus, you have to kill the zombie. But you don't want to kill the zombie, but you don't want the zombie to kill you. So you are like, what do I do? This is what the Bible describes was our dilemma. Sin and death was so much a part of us that if the conquering king came to conquer sin and death and subdue it, eliminate it, get rid of it, who would be subdued, eliminated, and gotten rid of along with sin and death? Us, the human race. We couldn't have fathomed this. If he is conquering king to conquer sin and death, he conquers us. The way Paul puts it is that we are children of wrath. In other words, we are in the path of the conquering king, not to be behind him as those being saved by his conquering, but to be conquered by him because sin and death has so infiltrated creation that at this point to conquer sin and death is to conquer us. And so we are dead in the water. And so a profound thing happens. God comes twice. Well, he's come once in our human story. He'll come again. But he has two advents. The first advent, he doesn't come to conquer sin and death in its totality. To overcome it. To subdue it. He comes to remove it from you and I as individual people so that we would no longer be tied to it in such a way that we are so infected that we are the zombies themselves. He heals us first of this infection so that when he subdues the infection, conquers the infection, overcomes the infection, destroys the infection, sin, he does not destroy us. This is the story that we begin to discover in the New Testament. The first advent was not a miss. It wasn't like Mary and Joseph had it wrong. There's going to be no conquering a hero. There's going to be no white horse. There's going to be no king of kings. There's going to be no lord of lords. There's going to be no subduing all of sin and death in the nations. That's not going to happen. He died on a cross. No, they were wrong. It's all going to happen. It was just going to happen on a second advent, not a first, because the first advent was his grace and mercy toward the human story. We know this. Because it is literally described in an event that took place with one of the disciples, John. John was taken up into heaven and he was given a vision of time in its past, present and future. Something that God can do that is incredible. And he has shown the story as it unfolds in totality. And there is a scene that takes place in heaven that is incredible dealing with this very topic. You see, a question is asked in Revelation chapter 5. And the question asked is this, who can judge sin and death? Who can conquer sin and death? Who can subdue hostility? Who can rule over the nations? Who can bring judgment to where judgment is due? Who can take injustice and eliminate it? Who can do such a thing? And John begins to get all bent out of shape in Revelation 5 because he's like, no one is found to be able. And then this occurs in Revelation 5. Listen to this. 
In Revelation chapter 5, it says in verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. A lamb. But listen to this. As though it had been slain. This is a lamb that when you look at it, you can tell it's been slain. It's been injured. It's been wounded. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. The scroll has seals on it. And the seals, when they are broken, bring about the judgment against sin and death. So the question was, who can break the seals? Who can bring the judgment? Who can conquer sin and death? And the lamb comes and takes the seal from the throne. And it says this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now listen to this. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed or rescued people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth with you. So there is this declaration that this lamb who is about to open the scrolls and then charge forth to bring judgment upon sin and death prior to bringing judgment on sin and death at what we would consider the second advent that Mary and Joseph might have thought would be the first. He was first slain so that he could make sure that you and I personally, if we come to know him as Savior, are no longer in the path of his wrath. That's why we call him Savior. That's why we say the first advent matters so much. That's why we say he lived, he died to take on the punishment or the cost of sin, death. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death in you and in I so that we can enjoy the second advent as part of the rescue, not part of the wrath. Paul, in that same book of Romans, where from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 10, unpacks in intricacy everything I've just said. You should read it if you've never done that. Describing how all this works. In Romans chapter 10, he writes this incredible simplicity about how all this works. Listen to what he says. If you, you or I, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. The extraordinary gift of the first advent, the first arrival, and all the circumstances post that arrival up up to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus was to create this 
incredible reality that you and I, if we come to understand these realities and we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did, and he did all that to save me from the virus sin so that I might have relationship with him again, that he says, you are now saved and you belong to that crowd in Revelation chapter five that he says, I've saved a bunch of people for, from, from which, how many tribes, tongues and nations? All of them. It is that profoundly, incredibly simple and profoundly, incredibly important. And then, then he comes as conquering king eventually. Listen to this. Remember how I said Mary and Joseph may have had this idea of a rider on a white horse? Unbelievable, incredible. Listen to what Revelation chapter 20 says about Jesus on his second advent, his second coming. Listen. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. So there is the rescue, the slayed part. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in white linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come sharp swords uh, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. See, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds stared into the manger and knew only of one advent to come, the conquering king, and with great joy anticipated that. But they couldn't have known that before that advent could come, that Jesus would need to do something profound to rescue us from sin and death before he would conquer sin and death and thereby conquer us. This is the first advent. And though they could not have known that, we do. If you are here today and you belong to Jesus, meaning you have come to understand that he is who he said he was and you believe that he did what he did and you've said, Jesus, I would like to have you be my savior so that I am set free from sin and death before you conquer sin and death. Then tomorrow is a profound day for you. You should walk into tomorrow and at some point in your day, find a quiet space, sit and stare into this manger. And perhaps in your imagination, look to your left and right at the, at the shepherds and think to yourself, as profound as their experience must have been, mine is more. For I know that this king is a king who is a lamb slain for my rescue and a conquering king on a white horse for the rescue of humanity from sin and death. Wow! He is all of it. And I am the recipient of this king's mercy and grace and this king's power and conquering because one day, this is what Revelation 21 says, he has made all things new and creation is once again in a state of peace, no hostility. And we who have been saved by Jesus are part of that story instead of eliminated along with sin and death. What? That's what we ought to do. And if you are here and you, and you don't know Jesus, you're, you're not sure what all that's about. You're, you're not sure if you believe any of this. I get it. 
All of us have traveled a journey. I've traveled my own journey and that journey. But I would tell you, start here with asking some real questions, digging more deeply. This is a profound reality. And he is coming again as conquering king. And you, I promise you, want to be in the category of being a person who has been saved by Jesus so that sin and death, when it is conquered, doesn't include you. Take the journey with someone. Read more. Come talk to us. Figure it out and believe. Because Paul said, once you see this and you believe, you are saved and you belong to Jesus. What a profound thing. So we stand this Christmas at the manger, the first of two Advents, to celebrate that Advent and all that it meant so that we can anticipate with great joy the coming Advent in the future. What a Christmas awaits for us. Our faithful and true King in this manger who has done it all for us and will do it all for us. He is indeed worthy, is he not, of all of our awe and praise and all of the joy we have to express. And tomorrow is the day that affords us a chance to do it fully. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us, the amazing ways in which you have set up history so that you would not just show up once as an advent to come as conquering king, to conquer sin and death, but that you would show up twice, first to save us from sin and death before you show up a second time to judge sin and death and conquer it. Thank you, God for the first advent, for your life, death, and resurrection, for your rescue, for being the lamb of God slain for the sins of mankind so that we might be free. Thank you for being our savior. May we believe. May we trust. May we follow you. And this Christmas, may we stand in awe of what you've done for us as we stand in awe of what you will do in the future our future, conquering all of sin and death, making all things new and setting right creation so that the curse, the virus would be done and we would experience the fullness of life, light and freedom that is you and your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Amen.